I'm reading from Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Thank you. Turn me up just a little bit. I can sometimes be a low talker. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a teaching strategy when I was a teacher to talk lower so that students would get quieter. Free gift for those teachers out there. Well, good morning. My name's Marcus, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption. And Happy New Year. Uh, I don't know if it's too late. I don't know when it's too late. It feels like the first time you see somebody in the New Year, you say Happy New Year after a certain point, right? Up to a certain point. But I see you in March, and I haven't seen you all year. I won't say Happy New Year. This morning, uh, I want to make sure you hear from me, as you always do, that what I'm going to do in the next 25 to 30 minutes, I will be judged by God for. James chapter 3, verse 1 says to every preacher who stands behind a pulpit or any any way and, and, and preaches the word of God that we will be judged more harshly. When I sit in my study week after week and prepare, I think of that verse And there is a healthy fear of God that comes over me. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new year. We thank you for growth. We thank you for all the things that happened in 2023, some of whom were great blessings from you that we noticed, and some of whom were were things that we didn't notice. Lord, we thank you for the whole mixed bag of life that was the mundane, the hard, the easy the tragic, the tears, the joy, the celebrations. Lord, the new births, new lives that, have come in, that we've come in contact with. Lord, as we enter into your word this morning, I pray that every heart here will hear from you a word from God. I pray that you use me just as a mouthpiece to share your truth that has the power to convict to rebuke, to encourage, and to care. I thank you for all these things. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. It's great to be with you this morning. Have you ever had someone ask ask you the phrase, you're not from around here, are you? When someone asks you that, what are they trying to get from you? What are they trying to, for you to say? You're not from around here, are you? Right? In 2008, I was moving from Baltimore, Maryland to Denver, Colorado with one of my great friends. And we were driving my little car across the country. 
And one of our stops on that journey was in a town called Salina, Kansas. We stopped in Salina. If you're from Salina, obviously, welcome. <laughs> but Salina is a small town. It's right off of I-70. I-70 goes right across our country. Uh, so we stopped in Salina. It was late. Uh, we found a hotel, and we stopped at the hotel, and we went to get a meal. I think it was Applebee's or Ruby Tuesdays, one of those places, right? It was kind of at the height of the dinner hour, and my friend and I, you know where this story is going, right? And my friend and I walked into the Applebee's, and it felt like crickets. Like everyone turned around and looked at us, and someone, you could tell the question was coming. You're not from Rye, are you? We sat down, and we ate, and the waitress, sure enough, said, hey, where are you guys from? We was like, oh, we're driving through. We're from... We're from, uh, we're from Maryland, and we're going to Colorado. And then a few gentlemen actually came and sat with us, and we started having conversations. But one of the things they kept saying was, hey, yeah, back in Manhattan, back in Manhattan, back in Manhattan. My mind and Joe's mind, Manhattan meant Manhattan. I didn't realize there was a Manhattan, Kansas. Same thing would happen when I lived in France. I lived in France for a year, and uh, I would go somewhere and make a grievous cultural error or a linguistic error or something, and the phrase would be, tu ne viens pas ici, right? You're not from here. No, I'm not. I don't know what gave it away. <laughs> my, my lack of language, my lack of culture, my baggy clothes, I don't know what gave it away. But that question can serve as an indictment sometimes. It can, make, it can make you, it forces you to self-examine. You look at yourself. When someone says, you're not from here, aren't you? Like you're breaking a rule or something, right? You look around. And sometimes it'll be like, you know what, you got me. I, I'm not from here, right? Is it the way I'm dressed, right? I'm trying to slide by as a local. This month, we're going to spend some time in the next three weeks in a series of sermons we're calling Christian Maturity. Maturity in Christ. What are some of the characteristics of a mature Christian? Now, when you see another Christian, you recognize they're not from here because they're going somewhere. If you need a Bible, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. The ushers have been holding them. I'm sorry, Peggy. Would you read? I know the Bible is heavy. Thank you. If you raise, raise your hand, if you need a Bible... Uh, the ushers will hand you one. There's a young man right there, thank you, uh, will get you a Bible. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Um, Colossians, which by the way, let me just take a little time out here. Um, I grew up in West Africa, so we pronounce Colossians, Colossians. So if that slips out, it's what it is. Colossians, Americans say, Colossians have to practice. Paul, the writer of this book in the Bible, which is only four chapters, it's probably three or four pages in your Bible, you can read it in one setting, is writing, Paul is writing to a group of new believers whom he has not met, and these believers are in a church that Paul did not plant, and he is writing this letter and giving it to a friend to deliver the letter to these people who want to know how to live as Christians. They have, they, they've fallen in love with Jesus Christ, 
but they are living in a society that is very pluralistic, meaning there are tons of ways, tons of things that people are worshiping. So when this letter arrives, some of the things that are said in the letter seem like basic Christianity for us, but they were also very fundamental for the people who were first listening to them. They were listening and reading this to say, hey, in, in our society, how can we live as Christians? What needs to change in our lives for us to line up with this new Jesus Christ that we found that we can walk with? Pick me up in verse 1 in chapter 3 of the book of Colossians this morning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Like I said, Colossians is a very short book, and at this point in the book or letter, Paul is narrowing down, here are some things that are marks of a great Christian, of a mature Christian, right? Christians are trying to live a new life, their attitudes and behaviors they want to change, and they want to live kind of mentally separate from the society that, they're, that is surrounding them. This letter is a guide to how we ought to live, how we ought to abandon certain things from our old life and embrace new things in our Christ-honoring life. The people in the church of Colossians were living any kind of way, if you will, right? Paul says, hey, here is a letter. Here are things that you should do as Christians, right? Here's a roadmap to kind of help you. Now, Paul uses the phrase, he says, he talks about your old life and your new life. If you want to know what, the, what are some of the things that the people in the, the Colossian church were to say no to, just read down with me, skip down to verse 5. We'll cover that in the next coming weeks, but I just want to read it to you. Here are some things that were in their old life that Paul is saying, here's some things that you should not be doing anymore. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too were what you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, malice, wrath, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Stop there. Obviously, some of these things, I like to say, we don't say these things in church, but they're in the Bible, right? They lived in a very pluralistic society. There were many options for them to worship, and there are many gods for them to, to, to devote their lives to, much like today, right? Much like Tucson, the city of Tucson, there are many things you could worship. There are many gods you could devote your life to, right? Some of them don't display themselves as God, but we devote our lives to them as if they were. Paul had to convince them that Jesus wasn't just one of the gods. He was the God, right? When, 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 when Colossian believers, or most new believers, first become Christians, they, they would think that, oh, this, is, this Jesus is just another God I can add to my mantle of gods in my society, right? Paul, say, uh, Paul says in, verse, in chapter 1, I'll read it with you. He says, Jesus is, here's who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. This is who you have been raised with in, in verse 1. This is whom you have been raised with. He was raised from the dead, and so have you. If you're a Christian, you have been raised from the dead. Wait a minute, but I'm not dead. If you're a new Christian and you're a new person, say, but explain that to me, right? This can be foreign language and imagery to people who aren't Christians. So let me, let me just pause right here real quick, right? It is uncommon language to people who aren't Christian, but it's very common in, in, in biblical language, right? When people say, oh, you were raised, what does that mean, right? Right? You, the Bible describes our life with Jesus when it begins, when we say no to certain things and we say yes to Jesus as a new birth. A death happens and a new birth arises, right? A new life emerges within the life that you do have. There's a great story in a book of John, one of Jesus, in a book of John chapter 3. Um, Jesus is at night. A gentleman that the Bible describes as a Pharisee, a ruler in, 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 in society, he's a high up man in the church, comes to Jesus at night. He comes, by the way, when people traveled at night, when, when you see in the Bible that someone moved at night, that was a serious undertaking because the, the streets weren't lit typically, right? So when someone's moving, when they're moving at night, they're up to something, right? So he's up to something. He's like, man, I got to go see this Jesus. So this Pharisee, the guy high up in the church, goes to see Jesus at night, and he asks Jesus a question. He said, what must I do to be a Christian? There's a side question there. If you're in a church, what's going on? But he says, Jesus, what can I do to be a Christian? And Jesus answers him the way Paul is writing here. He says, you must be born again. When he says that, the guy's, this is kind of a foreign term for this man. He's like, what do you mean born again? You mean I have to go back into my mother's womb to be born again? Scientifically, that's what you're thinking. If you aren't Christian, you aren't familiar with these things, you're thinking, what does that mean, born again? Right? But that's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying that when you, when you, come, to, when you come to know Jesus, your life actually starts over. You must be born again. Your life must start over. Something has to die and a new life has to come out for you to become a Christian. When you become a Christian, Paul says, you are a new creation. New birth from death. So Paul uses these analogies to express what must happen in our lives. We're not just adding Jesus to the mix that we have. Jesus is not the tomato on the salad bar of our religious options. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you become a Christian, something occurs. Something begins to occur, and something will occur in you. Don't miss that. Something occurs in you, something begins to occur, and something will occur. It changes a lot about you, if not everything, right? A new life starts, right? Salvation has been accomplished, and sanctification 
begins and continues. I know those are church words, but I'm going to break them down. Your mindset has to change in order to become a mature Christian. In order to grow as a Christian, you have to give over your mind. Your mindset, the way you interact with the world, will be different. The second part of this verse in verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. That's one of the characteristics of a Christian is that your mindset changes. Your primary, fa- your, your primary purpose in life is not to focus on everything about me, but everything about the world that is above. Where Christ is, it says, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So chapter, verse 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I want to pause right there. If then, right, if then, usually in our language, if and then, when they're composing in a sentence, usually there's a comma, and those sentences are called conditional sentences. So if this happens, then this should happen. Well, if you notice there, if then is to, are together. What Paul is trying to say, don't miss this. What he's trying to say is the condition has already been completed, My coach used to say, chew on that. So he's saying that your condition is already completed. You have been raised with Christ, so then these things should happen. Your mind should be on things above. Set your minds on things above, not on earth. If I may use a bowling analogy, which is a sport that I'm not great at, but I want to use this for you. Um. If this is true, right, if you have a new starting point as a result of a new birth, this is a chance for a redo, a mulligan, if you will, a second chance. If this happens, this also, if you are a Christian, this, the following things must also be true about you. If you have been raised with Christ, then your affections, your mind, your desires, should be turned towards things above. Set your minds on things not here, but things that are above. What does he mean by above? Your thoughts are to rest on things above. In contrast to other religions, as Paul did, the primary audience is Colossians. Don't worry, stay with me. The primary audience is, is Colossians. He's saying that all the religions that are around you tend to focus on things here on earth. Fertility agriculture, war, power, reincarnation, all those things are kind of uh, centered on your life here. In contrast, Paul is saying, we must turn our attention to a time and place where Christ already reigns. Here's the bowling analogy. It's a warning. You know how in bowling there are two gutters? I don't know if they're called gutters, but I'm going to call them gutters. Gutter ball, yeah, 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 gutter. Yeah, I'm familiar with the gutter ball. <laughs> gutter ball, that's right, right? There's a gutter that we can fall into on one side of this situation. When the Bible says, when Paul says here, focus your minds on things above, the faulty interpretation that some of us may have is very simplistic. A very simplistic application of this is we're tempted to live in a world and, and nothing matters. 
nothing that happens around you, like it's all going to burn, it's all I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go to heaven, and nothing here matters. This is not what this verse is saying primarily. You're saying in an incorrect interpretation and application of this is that everything on earth is kind of out of my focus, and I need to just think of things in heaven. All efforts here are for nothing because my, mind's is, my mind is focused on things above. You and I live here. But our mentality ought not to be of here. Since Jesus rose from the dead, he has begun ruling over everything of all time in our lives. Our new life is not meant for just waiting until we go to heaven. I didn't get an amen, but I'm going to say it again. Our new life here is not meant for us just waiting to go to heaven. Jesus would have just preached and not healed anyone if that was the case. This is what some theologians will call the armless gospel, meaning that you're a Christian, but you're just sitting and waiting. Our gospel should not lack arms, meaning our hands should do work here on this earth when we become Christians. Amen? Our work here should matter. You're not just sitting and waiting. You've come, you become a Christian. You're like, oh, man, let's wait. I'm going to go to heaven at some point. I'm just waiting. Nothing else matters. That's not it. That's not it. Our gospel message should not lack arms. When I was a kid in West Africa, every year or so, it was a great organization that used to come to Africa, and I didn't even know they were Christians because my little mind. But the organization was founded in 1978 by a man named Donald Stevens. Mercy Ships. Anyone know Mercy Ships, right? They, would, they travel the world with nurses and doctors, and they go to countries that, that children need surgeries, like the surgeries that they can't get in their own countries. And people, when they were coming, when the news hit that Mercy Ships was coming, they, people would come from the villages who needed immediate or, or, or long-term medical care, and they would come to, these, they would come to this ship, and the doctors would perform massive surgeries on people, whether easy or hard, and they would treat people all for free. That's not armless. They're a Christian organization based in Texas. They're one of the greatest nonprofits that I can think of. They would go and heal people, regardless of religion. When we as Christians just sit on our hands, it is not a mark of maturity. It's actually quite simplistic in our thinking and our application of this great faith that we share. It's like having a great idea and not ever putting it into practice. It's like receiving a gift and never using it. Right? You've heard the phrase, some people are so heavenly minded that they're no, of no earthly good. Right? One commentator says this, being heavenly minded does not result in isolating oneself from the world, ignoring te- contemporary issues, or declining to be involved. Just the opposite, he says. Being heavenly minded results in attempting to please God who has given us work to do in this world. Let me bring it closer to home for you. If you say, man, okay, mercy ships I can't get to. I can't be what my coach used to call an all-star Christian, right? 
I, I, just, I just need to know what to do. I, w- I, want you to, I want you to hear me. He's like, what can I do to show my maturity if I'm not, going to, if I'm not, if I'm not traveling to missions trips, if I'm not doing all these kinds of things where, quote-unquote, all-star Christians would do? What can I do? Love your family. Reconcile broken relationships. Not stealing from your employer. I feel like I should say that. And let me express what I mean. Your mindless, oh God, help me. Your mindless scrolling on your employer's time. I'm just going there this morning. I didn't realize I was going to go on your couch this early, but here it is. Your mindless scrolling at your job is actually stealing from your employer. Not being indifferent to the small and big problems in the lives of people around you. Weeping when it's time to weep. Celebrating when it's time to celebrate. Not the heroic things, but the mundane shows maturity. Some of us want, we want to live life as high-level Christians. This, I want, let me give you this. There's an image right here. I have a son who's 20 months old. Imagine him on a basketball court with NBA players, and they're doing bounce passes, and they're throwing up, and they're dunking, and he's trying to just get in the game. If you, I think of that image when I think of, like, other Christians are doing great things. You're like, well, how are they? I want to do that. Well, you got to grow. They've spent years. Some of them have, right? My coach used to always say, before you can do the no-look pass, you have to master the look pass. Some of us don't want, don't want to do the look pass. We want to do the fancy stuff. The fancy tux takes time. In the next three weeks, we'll walk through spiritual disciplines and prayer, those kinds of things that build us up. Your identity as a Christian is a catalyst for a new journey. Paul states in verse 3, he says, in a slightly different way, in a metaphor, he says, you have died. In verse 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. The old you has died. Your life now should not look anything like the life you had before. Your life now is to imitate Christ in his work. If If you're new here, you're saying, well, tell me what Christ did so I can start doing that. What did Jesus do when he was on earth? How many times a day does it cross your mind when you're in a situation, what would Christ do here? What would Jesus do here? What did Jesus do when he walked the earth? Well, he cared for people. He discipled others. He spoke truth. He loved people. Those are just kind of the basics. Anybody with me? I'm going to date myself real quick. Anybody with me in late 90s, early 2000s, there were these bracelets. Some of you just had that, yeah, you just had that, right? Right? You had those bracelets that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I'm not ashamed to tell you I had a lot of colors of that bracelet. But my, my colors were matching, you know, whatever outfit I had that day, that's my what would Jesus do bracelet that I had, you know? And I used to wear the bracelets. I'm not ashamed to tell you, I got to tell you. Confession time. I used to wear those braces when I was on the field, right? I'm playing. 
And I said some things that Jesus wouldn't have said. <laughs> I stepped on a few toes. I definitely elbowed people. I retaliated. If someone fouled me, I kept it in my mind. So I'm going to get you at some point. I'm going to get you. Jesus wouldn't have done that. But I was wearing the bracelet. Right? Here's, the, here's the, where I'm trying to get to. I had said the prayer. I read my Bible. And I was saved, yes. But few people discipled me on how to live all of my life for Jesus. All aspects of my life for Jesus. Some of you here don't know how to live in your new identity as Christians. Your weeks look exactly the same. Your relationships are the same. Your work is the same. You haven't gone through and thought through your attitudes, your language, your goals in life, your driving. I'm preaching to myself on that one. That the way you spend, the way you save, the way you give money, you are completely armless. And the enemy of God loves it when Christians are completely armless. The gutter, that's one gutter. In the, in the next coming week, we'll talk about the other gutter, which is the heartless gospel. Don't be an armless Christian. Don't be an armless Christian. Let me equip you on how to live with arms. I know you know how to live with arms. Live in anticipation of glory. Live differently. Care for people. Disciple others. Speak truth. Love people. Verse 4 says this. When Christ who is, in, when Christ who is, who, who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When we become Christians, we put to death a lot of things. But yet, a new life is created. We ought to live differently. Being a Christian forces us for people to look at us and say, there's something different about you. You're not from here, are you? When you become a Christian, you get a new passport with a different destination stamped inside. You ever met someone who shares their faith but doesn't really live their faith? It can be disorienting, right? I will share my faith with my neighbors, but man, if somebody park in my parking spot, man, there's going to be some smoke in this city, right? You better not park in front of my house, even though I will invite you to church, right? There's a story that I've told, uh, probably I've told you many times, but I like to tell the story again. There, is, there was a missionary named Otto Koning. Anybody know that missionary? He, he, he traveled from Michigan, and he went to Papua New Guinea with his family as missionaries to, to teach the people in Papua New Guinea about the faith of Jesus Christ. He takes his family. They go over there. He's a, his wife is a, is a nurse, and they're living on this remote island. Remote. When I say remote, I mean remote. Well, he's trying to befriend these tribes in the jungle, and these, these jungle people are... are Headhunters and they, they actually kill people. But he, he lands on his island, right? And he starts to minister to these people. Well, one of the ways he figured he could minister to them was to plant pineapples because they love pineapples. Well, he planted a whole garden of pineapples. If you know anything about pineapples, they take three years for one pineapple to come. 
So he's there for those years, and he's watching these pineapples. Well, the first crop of pineapples come, and the folks still all his pineapples. And by the way, he loves pineapples. So as a missionary, he's, he's like, man, these people are stealing my stuff. I'm trying to minister to them, and he's kind of getting angry. Well, the next cycle of pineapple comes up, and guess what happens? They steal his pineapples again. He's been there seven years, and he's angry. So you know what he does? He calls back to the States, and he asks the folks at the mission, hey, can you, can you guys send me a mean dog to keep these people away from my pineapple? So he gets a dog. So the dog is now roaming the pineapple fields trying to protect his pineapples. He wants to eat the pineapples as well, right? And the folks are like, why did you get these dogs? And they're all angry, and the people all leave. The people he's supposed to be ministered to are gone. He has his pineapples now, but no people. As the story goes on, he tells his story. He says, once he got rid of the dog, and he says, Lord, these pineapples are yours and not mine. If you want those people to eat them, let them eat them. And, and he surrenders his pineapples, for all things, to the Lord. The people start wondering, why is he not angry about the pineapples anymore? He, he says, I don't own the pineapples. And the people say, well, who owns the pineapples? And he said, God does. And they don't know who God is. Right? And all of a sudden, the relationship changes between he and the people. And you know what the people said that, that, that kind of caught him by, by surprise and actually convicted him? They said, oh, my gosh, you've become a Christian now. <laughs> and all these years, he's been trying to preach to these people. You see what I'm saying? He went across the world, and it took pineapples. It took a surrender for him to be able to share the gospel with the people. He's a funny guy when he tells a story. You would die laughing, but he's like, the people looked at me and said, oh, my gosh, all the things that you've been telling us, now you're living them. You've become a Christian. Here's one simple way that you can know. Here's a couple simple ways that you can know if you're maturing in Christ. What, you can ask yourself this question, what is the second, third, or fourth things that people say about you when you're not in the room? You know Marcus? What Marcus? Soccer Marcus? Preacher Marcus? You know what I'm saying? You understand when people have to describe you, what's the second or third thing they say about you? That's an easy way to know what your life is about. In our society, sometimes uh, we talk about people's appearances as the second thing. You know this person? Oh, curly hair, right? Or sometimes it's an attitude. You know this person? Oh, that mean person, right? The second or third thing they say about you. Sometimes people will say things about your work or your hobbies, right? What is the second, third, and fourth thing that people say about you? Oh, do you know Emily? Emily who? Emily who works with the refugees. Oh, you know Mackenzie? What Mackenzie? Mackenzie's who always, who's always in the park feeling, feeding the homeless. Oh, you know the Carter family? Oh, they're so hospitable. Oh, you know the Harris family? Oh, that family is a prayerful family. Right? What is the second, third, and fourth thing that people say about you? See, always, are you always helping somebody? Are you a discipler? Are you Christ-like? Are you gentle? Are you a prayer warrior? Are you trustworthy? Let me bring it down to somewhere else. When people see you, do they say, man, if you say this, by Kelsey Hamilton, if she says she'll be there, Kelsey will be there. If you do business with Scott Burbank, he'll give you a fair shake. 
He will treat you fairly. If you need someone to talk to, you can call Ashley Reynolds. If you need someone to give you a godly counsel, you can talk to Kira Goffney. If you need a home to walk into and they will welcome you, you can go to the Scherzer's. I'm just naming people off the top of my head that I see. Evidence of Christ-like character shows maturity in Christ. What is the second, third, fourth things that people say about you? Paul, who was writing this letter, the gentleman who was writing this letter that we're studying, is, was a Pharisee and a persecutor of Christians, right? And he goes on to, his, his old life dies, and he takes the same zeal, right? And he's a writer and a theologian. All of the, the, most of the New Testament is written by him. He's writing this letter, by the way, from a prison cell. As I close this morning, I want you to give some thought as to what it would look like, what your life would look like if you're walking with Christ in maturity. What does it look like in your workplace to show a Christian maturity? Can you reflect on the attributes of Jesus on your everyday life? One commentator says it this way. He says, believers are to make Christ's return and future glory a beacon that guides their steps in the dark in a deprived world. Our world does not need armless Christians sitting down and waiting for heaven. It also, by the way, does not need militant ones. It needs Christ-like Christians. We live our lives in anticipation of glory, of heaven's glory, but we, we provide hints of it in our life now, wherever you are. We really are not from here. So when someone asks you the question, you're not from here, are you? Your answer can be, not anymore. Not anymore. Would you bow your heads with me? Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your peace that surpasses all understanding. Heavenly Father, would you walk with us as we mature? All of us are in different places in bearing fruit for you and growing. Some of us are just seedlings. Some of us are mature trees. And we all have a role in this Christian life. Heavenly Father, I pray that you continue to reveal to us what you want us to do on a day-to-day basis from Monday to Saturday as mature Christians to walk. God, we thank you for the breath we still have in our bodies. We praise you, we honor you, we worship you. May our light shine in wherever places we go this week. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.